Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Gayatri Vaidyanathan. Gayatri is a science journalist who reports on health and the environment. She's written and produced stories for The Washington Post, Discover, Nature, The New York Times, amongst many other publications. She has received a variety of awards for her work, including being a part of the team that received the 2019 George Polk Award for Environmental Reporting. Gatri has a master's in journalism from Columbia University and a bachelor's in biochemistry from McMaster University in Ontario, where I'm also alma mater. So Gatri, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, when I was pre- preparing for this interview, I was uh, doing some research and your bio really reads like an intrepid globe-trotting science journalist. <laughs> How has uh, COVID affected you? Has it clipped your wings a little bit? Oh, yes. Uh, 2020 has not shaped out how I planned. So, um, yeah, at the beginning of the year, I got back to India. I've been there for the past two years. And then just last month, I came back to Canada. So I'm Indian-Canadian. So um, yeah, and it looks like I'm going to be in Canada for the next little while. So, and that's strange because I haven't been here for quite a long time, almost a decade. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was surprised <laughs> that we were in the same area code. It's, yeah. uh, it's kind of hard to schedule these interviews with my international guests. So, mm-hmm. it was a, a small convenience of COVID on my end. But, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Gatri, I brought you on the, the show because um, I was interested in exploring an article that you wrote way back in 2015 for Scientific American. Um, and in that article, you're writing about the village of Darnai in the state of Bihar, India. And this village was the site of Greenpeace's showcase decentralized rural solar microgrid. Um, and you know, Greenpeace really hoped that this project would serve as the model for thousands of other rural Indian villages and provide power to some of the, I guess, hundreds of millions um, in India still without electricity. Um, you know, my audience includes some people that are pretty skeptical about weather-dependent renewable energy, but I think most people really see a role for it in these far-flung rural areas. So it was an, a topic that I was interested in delving in with you. Um, in, in researching for the interview, I, I definitely saw a lot of really flashy, well-produced videos on Greenpeace websites that sing the, the solar microgrids praises kind of as an unbridled success story. Um, but in reading your piece, um, you know, I think as is to be expected, the story is a lot more complex than the hype. So it's it's really great to uh, to have the privilege of of chatting with you to learn a little bit more. Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about it. Can you tell me a little bit about the village of Darnai? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Darnai is um, it's a typical Indian village in that it's um, it's not as backward as one might think it's pretty close to this uh, city of Gaia which is where the Buddha uh, attained enlightenment so pretty famous tourist center and this is I think about uh, an hour drive from Gaia and um, the village itself is pretty typical it's uh, it's got this farm-based economy and then it has it's divided uh, according to caste so you have um the upper castes in one part of the village and the lower castes in the other part. And I'm, I'm mentioning that because that really actually matters in terms of how people get electricity access. It's sort of, sort of divided along caste lines. 
And um, yeah, one thing I'd want to mention is that uh, this is from 2015. So we are now in 2020, and I'm sure the village has developed even more. And um, you know, there might have been there might be some shifts and all that. But uh, so this is generally. So what I'm saying is, Darna is stereotypical of um, Indian villages. And when I got there. I was expecting to find, um, you know, the solar village because that was sort of the story that was being promoted by Greenpeace at the at the time. It was um, Darnay was supposed to be their pilot, this wonderful case study, and um, yeah, it was the situation on the ground was a lot different, and that's what is usually the case in India. It's sort of where all you know, all these good intentioned, well, well-intentioned projects, um, when you get to the ground in India, they just don't really, um, yeah, that's not, uh, mm-hmm. the situation is just much more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the university of Guelph and they had a large, um, international development program and it certainly seemed like, you know, it's the exception, not the rule that you, you don't run into those kind of problems, uh, with a lot of development, uh, a lot of development projects. Um, I understand that Darnay actually had um, grid-based power into the 1980s, but was cut off uh, due to some political issues. Can you go into that in a little bit? Yeah, so it did. Uh, It had power. And then, um, again, caste comes into play for for many reasons. Uh, Caste caste is essentially tied to uh, the way governments are elected. There's vote bank politics. So uh, they, I guess, did not pick the winning side and they never got, um, they never got power. So the interesting thing about Dharana is other villages around it had power. This one, one pocket did not. So, and that was definitely because of uh, just politics. And was after it, that, was that the Naxalite rebellion or? Uh, I think, you know, that's sort of the undercurrent but it's um it's more than that it's just about supporting who is essentially yeah who's essentially in power and um this essentially knowing the right people in the right places because i think at some level it's also about bureaucracy and it's not necessarily at the huge um at the level of the cm um it's also who is in power at the state department or yeah, uh, sorry, at the power department. So at different levels, the bureaucracy can matter. Um, mm-hmm. They just didn't know the right people, I guess. And right. they did try many times to get power. Um, at one point, the residents just collected, pooled this money, and then they went and asked for a transformer to be set up, and it just didn't happen. And all that money just went to waste. So, um, yeah, I think um, that's one thing that... I should sort of point out about Darnay. It's not one of those remote places in India or in other parts of the world where you cannot get the grid. It's very much sort of in the hub of things. So as I said, it's very close to Gaia. It's close to Varanasi, which is another major city. So mm-hmm. there was no reason why power should not be there except for politics. Right, right. Yeah, I was reading something that said there was large kind of power lines that, <laughs> that went over the village, but they just weren't connected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how uh, I'm not sure if you were there before the microgrid um, was built, but maybe you heard from people, their descriptions of, you know, their energy poverty and what, what life was like without electricity in the village. Yeah, um, 
I did. And um, it was not, yeah, as you might imagine, it was, it was terrible. Uh, people could not study, like kids could not study uh, past 5 p.m. because the power would go out. Um, but then in India, people are very much, um, they try to find solutions. So diesel power generator would be a solution for the well-to-do people in the village. And uh, there definitely are well-to-do people in the village um, and they belong to a particular part of town and they'd have things like uh, television, refrigerators and such. Um, so, yeah, they had the diesel-powered generators. It was the poorer people who were in a, I guess, in a worse circumstance and they were not having a great time. And I guess the, yeah, I'm not sure to what extent a lot improved when the solar came but maybe we can go into that um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with a different question but yeah yeah i mean so how did um i mean that's i think that's very interesting the way in which these class divisions were kind of reinforced like if you know if it gets dark at 6 p.m and your kids can't study then there's no no chance for kind of a meritocracy or for your family to kind of advance itself through education if you just you can't study like i think a lot of people in the west really take what we have for granted and that's just such a clear illustration of the kind of limits that energy poverty puts on people. Yeah, definitely. So um, how did how did Darnay come to the attention of Greenpeace? It was it was by chance. Uh, there was a the village chief was essentially on a train ride, and he just got to speaking with this Greenpeace representative. And I think Greenpeace at that time was looking for a solar village, like a model village that could show off as the epitome of the microgrid and um, its ability to solve this energy problem in India without having to uh, fall back on coal-based power. So it was kind of like, yeah, I guess it was serendipity. And then Greenpeace, the, the rep came to the village, saw it, and then, uh, yeah, money came in from abroad and they decided to set up this village-level experiment. and. Mm -hmm. Um, people were happy, you know, um, Greenpeace. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm vilifying <laughs> Greenpeace here. I have to be careful about that sure, because sure. I think uh, they are well-intentioned. I appreciate the fact that they bring this other alternate voice because I think different perspectives are so important in this. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Okay, maybe I'll yeah. I'll do a little vilification. <laughs> 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 um, there, there's a funny quote, not from Greenpeace, but a funny quote that I came across recently, which riffs off of this um, solar panel for huts campaign, which I think is more um, an African project. But the riff is a solar panel for every hut and huts forever. Um, and I think this <laughs> points a little bit towards um, Greenpeace and its first world environmentalist leaders having maybe they're implicit, but having some degree of preoccupation with the idea of third world peoples adopting energy rich lifestyles that environmentalists, frankly, enjoy and take for granted, um, as environmentalism does tend to be, you know, a, a an ideology and a movement that is largely occupied by wealthy people. Um, in any case, the, the solar village model, you know, is perhaps an attempt to steer electrification towards, you know, more of a limited subsistence use and development, which is like imposed by unreliable and, you know, limited solar energy. Is this, is this something that not without putting you on the spot, is this something that 
you encountered implicitly or explicitly, like in in doing your research or meeting with with folks in Greenpeace? Well, yes, uh, in meeting with folks from Green, Greenpeace. That's that's interesting. Um, so Greenpeace is doing what it is doing in India because it firmly believes that the rich people in the cities in India are sort of um, riding off the backs of poor people. So this particular Dharnai story was actually, um, it was like one side of the coin. The other side of the coin was another story that ran about a mining operation in Chhattisgarh where um, Greenpeace had gone. And this was in 20, um, yeah, this was in 2014, 2015, that time. And it's sort of that, that, that time is important because that's when, that's when Prime Minister Modi came into power and uh, the sort of like this whole nationalistic wave. And at that time, Greenpeace was essentially, it went to this village in Chhattisgarh and it was uh, where the government, uh, where there was a coal mine that was going to be started and this, uh, these villages had to be removed um, to have this open cast coal mine. And there also, when I went there and I saw what, you know, just what people in rural India, poor people in rural India were going through, it is it was quite sad because the air is getting polluted, the water is getting polluted, people are losing their homes. And these, these places really are extremely idyllic, you know, like I haven't seen villages like that in India. Like Tarnai wasn't, Tarnai is like way more developed than this place, which is really a part of nature. And I, I'm probably, I am romanticizing it. So <laughs> I can sort of, like I get what Greenpeace is saying. All of these people are going to lose that nature and what they're going to transition to is not this wonderful life of getting amazing electricity because they're going to suffer power cuts. Uh, instead, what they'll transition to is polluted environment and all of that coal is going to um, lead to power stations, which essentially ends up powering people in the cities who are rich and well-to-do. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, yeah, so that is the dichotomy, right? Um, so, but having said that, in Dharnai, um, it's, um, yeah, uh, and going back to your question, there was very much this idea that um, people's ambitions have to be reined in because that's just um, how it was. Like, for example, once the solar power came into place, it people, not everyone could draw power at the same time. So as soon as the rich people started plugging in their refrigerators and their television sets, um, the poor people could not, you know, light their light bulbs. So there's like just this whole draw. So they put up these posters around the, around the town saying, do not, do not use appliances like, um, like irons. So do not iron your clothing, do not do this and that, uh, use power at these times of day. So it was, power was very much restricted and that just um yeah i guess that just goes with the technology at that time it was um yeah a lot of lot of issues there were issues with metering they were just trying to figure out smart meters to get it to work properly and um but you know people are smart they're using they were using the solar energy as sort of like a backup so they had diesel power generator backups for okay so this is like once after greenpeace brought the solar energy the government came in and brought the grid they connected they hooked up the village to the grid and then once that happened the grid power was not constant so in that time 
people would switch to either the diesel generator backups or to Greenpeace's solar energy backup. So I really, I really want to yeah. get to that kind of magic <laughs> moment with the ribbon cutting, but but not just yet. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of what you were saying about the, the idyllic villages kind of being wiped off the map for coal mines, like it's it's kind of hard to imagine a more Lord of the Rings kind of Mordorish um, transformation, right? Um, so I, I can really sort of feel I'm a bit of a romantic myself, I guess. So I can really sort of feel for that. Um, and I, I, I have some understanding having grown up in a rural environment of just a kind of sense of belonging to a, a landscape or a piece of land. And I would I would certainly be upset if the place I grew up was was developed in such a way. I don't know if developed the right word. But, um, you know, another thing I wanted to touch on was just um, some of, you know, Greenpeace's communications. Um so a quote from the Darnai Live website talks about, you know, with the launch of the microgrid, Darnai has set the stage for more than 300 million Indian citizens to follow its example and declare their energy independence from the centralized power grid that has left them in the dark for decades. And it was just interesting, you know, I don't have a, a very in-depth knowledge of, of Indian history and politics, but that sort of appeal to declaring independence, it seemed to have kind of um, reverberations of the anti-colonial struggle in India was this kind of messaging directed towards the participants or the villagers, or is this more of a, an appeal to other sectors in society or, or kind of an international audience? Uh, international audience. So in India, this is not uh, messaging on climate and it doesn't really reach the common person. People in Dharnai are, you know, they couldn't care less about being independent of the power grid. I mean, it's it's a more day to day struggle of having power um, to run lives in a in a sort of organized fashion, so in a predictable manner. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this is about narrative. A lot of uh, climate change is about sort of like the battle of the narratives. I've found so this is a narrative that gets out about energy poverty and such. Um, although right now. Um, within India, you wouldn't necessarily talk about these issues um, in a very direct way. Um, what with the government, uh, like in 2019, it said um, all Indians have electricity, all villages have been electrified. So it's not necessarily a message that you would sort of take out in a very prominent way to say, um, let's get independent of the grid or people have energy poverty. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the conversation is very much more like these issues are more tied to development right now or the sustainable development goals or how to improve air pollution. So, yeah, um, the messaging is certainly not it's not something that you come across so much in India. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, the, the characters in the story that you wrote is uh, this boy named Rupesh Kumar and um I'm not sure. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about his experience of the solar grid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I remember I went into his house and there were two buffaloes tied in and inside the house, you know, it was very, very humble. And inside it was dark. And then I had to ask him, um, you know, where's this solar? You know, I heard you had solar power. Where is it? And um, he just went into this one room and then he turned it on. And you can, uh, there was a photo that ran with it. I don't know if you 
if you saw it in on Scientific American, but uh, it was just a bulb, and he wasn't too happy with it because it was not um, it was not dependable. Uh, so sometimes it would work, sometimes it would not, and when he would want to study, it would not work. Um, this guy was also helping his uh, dad on the fields, so there was a certain amount of time when uh, when he could study. So and that was like uh, four in the morning. I think I remember reading, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Four in the morning and wow. <laughs> that time because people would have like people would drain the power of the batteries uh, at nighttime, right? Uh, by watching TVs or whatnot in, so. in the rich neighborhoods. Yeah, 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 in the richer part of town. Yeah, that's interesting. So this was not sort of the great equalizer within the community. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think it sounds like, you know, the, the microgrid, maybe they had ambitious plans to sort of grow the capacity of it. But, um, you know, it, it seems to me like it was sort of created as a solution to the existing sort of subsistence level energy poverty, um, you know, like having a single light bulb or a, a socket to plug in a cell phone. But it kind of maybe failed to imagine that just like anybody else, um, these folks would want to have reliable, high quality electricity to have like like you were saying like a light that would be reliably on to study by or even you know heaven forbid an electric stovetop or refrigerator um it, we're going to get into what happened with the project but did it did its challenges really uh, emerge from their ideas about sort of the low energy lifestyles that that could be permitted by this this technology um well i, I think the major issue with the whole thing was uh, economics. It wasn't sustainable. Um, initially, when they came into town, they were uh, giving it at subsidized rates. And for about six months, that worked. But they couldn't continue doing that. It was just, um, you know, if you're going to put up an energy system for people to, uh, to help people um, or to power people, uh, it's at some point people have to start paying for it and the solar power was just extreme it was quite expensive and then when the grid came in it was more expensive than the grid power so it was kind of like um yeah it was i don't i don't know i don't want to say designed to fail but maybe i can give you an example of a microgrid that's maybe worked better than darnai in india yeah, it's sure. um it's in Jharkhand, which is um, close to Bihar. Uh, it's it's a coal mining, coal rich state, and uh, there there's this company called Melinda, and it's been uh, putting up microgrids for quite some time, and um, so they've taken up some twenty five villages and put up this microgrid, and what they found was um, so to have the cost work out. They need at least an 85% demand on just a constant 85% demand of power um, on the capacity. And that wasn't there naturally because, you know, these places are not industrialized. It's not like people are during the middle of the day, they're going to have like a constant demand. It's, um, it's homes at the end of the day. So in order for that cost economics to work out, they have to figure out a way to increased demand for which they had to also think about empowerment, you know, helping people set up small industries, which could create demand. So it's not just putting up a microgrid. It's also 
mm-hmm. doing some kind of empowerment, growing economies, and then having, once you have that demand, the system might become feasible. I'm not sure where Melinda is with at this point. Um, I reported this like two years ago. So at that time, they were just still struggling. That was about, I think, um, that was, they set up in 2016. So like two years later, they were still struggling to um, to make it commercially viable. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think in Tarnai, that's what happened. It wasn't commercially viable. And then it became even more not so once the grid came into existence. Okay, so you've been you've been sort of been teasing at the fact that the grid came along. So I I want to I want to definitely explore that moment. So um, you know, Greenpeace put a lot of effort. This again was their sort of showcase model here. Um, so there's big publicity campaigns, and you know, when I was googling this, there was a lot of flashy YouTube videos, and I think a CNN reporter even came. Um, but in any case, there was a lot of publicity. And it, it actually brought out, um, I'm not sure if he was the present or former chief minister, uh, but it brought out some powerful politicians um, to the village um, for the ribbon cutting ceremony. Can you tell us kind of what happened when the chief minister came? Yeah, so the chief minister got there. And um, so Greenpeace invited the chief minister. It was a, it was a big deal um, to have this solar village and Nitesh Kumar came, and he's he's the current chief minister as well. And uh, people got together, and this is what they told me after the fact, of course. Uh, they got together and they said essentially that they were not happy with, um, you know, with solar power. They wanted real electricity. And then this, it was interesting because um, of the idea that this electricity, solar electricity is not real. It's somehow fake or subpar. And the fact that people sensed it. Um, yeah, so they demanded real electricity. And, you know, it's not it's not every day the chief minister comes to your village. So it was a great moment for them. And then two weeks later, they came and set it up. And um, yeah, so... Well, I guess there was national media there or something that... Like, because the the villagers of Darnay had tried many times to get reconnected to the grid. So, um, was it the media pressure that that got the chief minister motivated to to no, finally? I think it was just having the year of the chief, of the chief minister. So before this, they didn't um, they didn't have that person they could speak to. Um, I'm sure also some amount of having. The big people there, whether it's media or also Greenpeace, Greenpeace brought in, I think, foreigners at that point, um, just people who it wanted to uh, show this village to, uh, just uh, international representatives of Greenpeace. So there's there was a lot of uh, it was a very public event, so that probably helped. But you know, once you put it into the year of the chief minister, and the chief minister says something, then you know, that chain of command really starts working. And that's what they didn't have before, just that power. And yeah, Greenpeace got them power uh, of a different sort. <laughs> was like was Greenpeace upset that, that the grid connection happened? Because it sounds like that's really what, you know, even though the solar power served a purpose after the grid came in terms of powering through like small blackouts that would occur. But, um, you know, was Greenpeace upset that, that they'd inadvertently gotten the village hooked up to the grid? I don't know. Um, so the thing is, I I didn't tell Greenpeace 
I was going to this village. Um, I think if I had told them, I would have gotten a different, um, yeah, just a different narrative because uh, people say, um, people tend to tell you what people are told to tell you. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense as a, um, essentially, yeah. Um, so I didn't go with them. I don't know if they were upset. What I did was talk to them after I went and I asked them my questions about it's, you know, about what I saw and they gave me their version of things. Um, so I don't know if they, if I would say they were upset or anything because I didn't speak to them uh, directly at that level. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly when I, you know, when I was doing some research and, and looking at Greenpeace resources, there's nothing after about 2015 and the website hasn't been maintained um, in terms of, you know, all the pre pre-grid publicity that was there. I mean, it's still, there's still donation boxes and things on the page for Darn I Live, but, you know, clearly they haven't, um, I guess, it's not their role necessarily to kind of be honest with the public or report the facts as they are. I mean, they they depend upon donations and things like that. So selling a narrative is is important. Um, you know, and I guess that's where, where journalism comes in. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that you kind of went in incognito <laughs> because of not wanting to have your narrative shaped or have like a minder or something like that. Um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit to talk um, a little bit more about sort of the politics of development. And uh, the Greenpeace model for the village has been described by some as being sort of a neoliberal market-based solution with the villagers kind of framed as consumers um, it was based on private investment, civil society, NGO kind of training of the community, and then with the idea of local community management. Um, and that contrasts a lot, I think, with um, people's ideas about, you know, electricity almost as a human right or something that should be provided by the state that you know, especially poor people are entitled to. Um, did you see that sort of contrast of narratives in your, your time in, uh, in Darnay? Consumers versus... Um, I guess entitlement, right? Like people saying, you know, like we're citizens of India and the government has a duty to us in terms of providing this kind of fundamental thing. And I mean, indeed, I guess you were saying like part of Modi's campaign has been to say we're going to electrify every village and and that the state has, you know, has a role um, and maybe even an obligation to its people to provide electricity. You know, again, versus that sort of NGO model of declaring independence and and sort of this non-government, privately funded model. Right. The question of agency, I guess. Um, in terms of, yeah, uh, I think just generally speaking, um, Indians don't, I mean, this is a sweeping generalization, so pardon me for that. But uh, Indians generally um, don't expect too much of the government. So when you talk about entitlement, it's not that people are going to say I'm entitled to power in the same way that, say, in Canada, I do feel I'm entitled to power because it never goes away. While when I'm in India, power cuts are routine and I don't, you know, it comes back when it comes back. And I'm not sitting there um, trying to request my government to give me better power because it's sort of... Uh, yeah, a futile exercise. It's um, life does not work that way. Yeah, I'm guessing like the the popularity of a government though might be affected by you know if there's frequent power outages versus less frequent ones that might you know 
be be something that the state would be interested in, in terms of its legitimacy to to work on. But um, I, I wanted to move on to talk a bit about a concept I think that's um, you know hoped for in the environmentalist community, which is that of energy leapfrogging. So you know, just in the same way that um, you know landline-based telecommunications have been leapfrogged by cell phones in, in much of the developing world. Um, I think there's a hope that, you know, we can leapfrog over coal and other fossil fuels straight to clean energy. Um, you know, I guess the problem being that particularly weather-dependent renewable electricity is, you know, by nature unreliable, you know, even in the wealthiest, most developed places in the world like Germany and California and, and seems to always drive up the cost. Uh, there's a quote I really like by an Indian economist named Samir Saran, who says, our poverty cannot be your climate mitigation strategy. Um, and it's when I was re- looking into this, it seemed a bit ironic that the Dharanai solar project, you know, the the rural Indians who contributed probably the least to global warming in the world were put kind of in the vanguard position in the fight against climate change um, through the use of expensive solar energy when their energy poverty was amongst the worst in the world. Uh, do you feel that majority world peoples that, again, have historically contributed so little to climate change have have the right to climb up that energy ladder from biomass to coal to natural gas to cleaner forms of energy as they modernize and industrialize? Yeah, I, I think at least they should have the choice mm-hmm. uh, to make the decision for themselves. So I think someone um, someone in Canada or the United States um, just like they have a choice and it would be great if they would choose to go live, um, you know, live in a community powered by solar or a microgrid essentially. And, um, just like they would have a choice and that's very much, you know, um, it'd be great if that's what they want. Uh, just like that, I think people elsewhere, it would be great if they have a choice as well. And, um, yeah, leapfrogging, that's an interesting concept because it implies that somehow uh, people will go from no power to this world of solar. And uh, it would, and th- these uh, people is in poor people and or the people who don't have electricity. I don't know if um, the technology is really there at this moment. So if it's going to be having a one bulb or an electrical outlet to charge their cell phones and going from there to having um, sort of a grid that's powered by utility scale solar or something, um, yeah, I don't know when that's going to become a reality. That's going to be a huge sort of a leapfrogging. I think it's more likely that um, these solutions might be a measure, uh, just a, a stopgap measure until the grid power comes along. And grid power in India at the moment is powered by coal, um, unless it's a very remote region. And I think there is about 12,000 of these villages and that cannot be reached by the grid. And of course, um, in other places, the grid is unreliable and their microgrids can have a role as a backup yeah. together with diesel. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's pretty hard to imagine modernizing and industrializing with a power source that kind of goes with with the sun, and you know, it would be off during maybe monsoon season, or you know, I heard that 
power demand in India really tends to peak kind of as the sun sets in the evening. And, you know, it's just, I don't know that, you know, that, you know, there's a lot of people who I think are very generous towards renewables and they say things like, well, you know, maybe the technology will get there one day, but, you know, with, with weather dependent um, energy sources, it's, it just, they just don't seem like they're by physics equipped to sort of provide that reliable electricity, like you were mentioning. Um, Nuclear power is, of course, the other source of zero air pollution, kind of ultra low emissions electricity that could be leapfrogged to potentially um, with the side benefit of, of being reliable. Um, I understand that nuclear energy currently meets about 5% of India's electricity mix. Um, I know we were saying it's kind of dangerous to speak in generalizations about a country of more than a billion people, but... Um, do you have any idea what sort of the general attitudes towards nuclear energy are, are like in India? Um, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, again, um, hard to say uh, overall, like a big picture. But um, as I said previously, it's a very practical point of view. And I would say most people would say um, if it works, that's great. People who are sort of having nuclear power in the backyards might take a different stance. And that just goes towards, um, you know, environmental pollution. And there was a particular nuclear plant, I think that was, um, that they were trying to, that, that, that is coming up in South India. And there was a lot of controversy around it, just whether it's safe and such. And at this point, I'm actually, yeah, I'm hard pressed. I, I, I don't know where, where that, that is. But beyond that particular circle of people and um, NIMBY advocates, nuclear power is not, um, you know, it's as accepted as anything else. It's just whatever works goes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in terms of that topic of whatever works, you're mentioning the, the Indian grid is largely coal-based. And coal obviously poses a clear and present danger to the health of many, many Indians, particularly those living in urban centers. Um, and, you know, there's this trade-off between escaping energy poverty by having reliable electricity and that sort of terrible burden of disease that goes along with, with the air pollution from coal plants. The WHO estimates that over 7 million people die every year as a result of air pollution. Um, in, in your experience, um, and again, recognizing that India is a large country with diverse viewpoints, where do people's attitudes tend to fall when they're weighing the pros and cons between um, having reliable energy versus the, the health impacts of, of coal? Um, yeah, so people don't think about the health impacts of coal because the people suffering the health impacts of coal are generally the rural poor. Okay. Um, just like I mentioned in, uh, in the story that went along with the Dharnai story, um, the extraction and the burning of coal um, was happening out in this idyllic, beautiful place, um, which you likened to Mordor. So that that is where it's happening. It's out of uh, the sight and mind of people in places like Delhi. Air pollution is a huge deal. Um, but they're not seeing the pollution coming out of coal power plants. They're seeing pollution coming out of, say, automobiles or yeah. other kinds of industry. And um, so that's where, you know, that's where uh, that's where sort of the concerns lie as far as um, these issues go. I don't think people are going to say they're going to uh, roll back coal power for the sake of 
air pollution, um, just because electricity is such a huge deal. Power cuts are so routine that if people could, they would want to have uh, more dependable power generation. So, yeah, um, like a lot of these, it is it is a very complex issue. So. It's hard to say what works. It's just the demand is so high and it's uh, nowhere close to being fulfilled at the moment. That, um, But then, as you say, the question is, how do you do it in a responsible way that moves away from coal power? And I, yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think the government is trying to figure it out and they have invested in a lot of renewables, um, which incidentally does include nuclear. They're they include that within their renewables um, category. So um, that's very interesting. I mean, I guess there's this vision of going towards thorium power in India, and India has just insane reserves of of thorium. So that's that is interesting for sure. Um, certainly, it's different in Europe where they won't classify it as even I think climate change friendly, um, which is puzzling. But uh, let's let's kind of close off. I wanted to. Um, ask you about responses to the article because um, you know the title was pretty provocative uh, was, I think called coal Trump solar in India um, what what were the responses that you got yeah um, <laughs> people were not pleased to say the least so I was working for a for a publication in DC at the time um, it's quite widely read by the environment community and um yeah just uh it goes against certain set uh rhetoric uh certain messaging and at the same time um <laughs> it aligns with other kinds of messaging by climate skeptics unfortunately um so it was kind of it was it was weird kind of falling on the should I say the wrong side yeah I can say the wrong side because I don't align with climate skeptics so right right yeah um, but I think it was also a lot of people did acknowledge um, the fact that the issues raised were very much real and true on the ground. Um, yeah, I, I'm just um, this was back with the Obama administration. I think the administration also was pushing um, a lot of solar and uh, uh, particularly microgrids. So it was just a uh, just the rhetoric in DC was very much pro microgrids and that sort of messaging. And this was before uh, the climate change conference as well, uh, the Paris conference. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Has it made you like a bit gun shy about writing these kind of pieces? Because what I've noticed is that there's a real lack of any critical journalism exploring the limits and sometimes very serious flaws with renewable energy. Um, you know, probably the best kind of critical analyses that I've seen are done by, as you were saying, often these kind of right-wing climate skeptic foundations like the Manhattan Institute. Um, and their arguments are, you know, when I read them, they're very science and engineering based and, you know, it's a solid analysis and they usually don't jump into climate skepticism in their, in their kind of reviews and, and discussions about the sort of physical limits of renewables. But it's often a hard pill to swallow coming from sort of like a Reaganite think tank. Um, you know, it's, it's just interesting. Like, why is it so hard for progressive science journalists to tell nuanced stories about renewables and their, their limitations and drawbacks? 
well, it also goes to the appetite for such stories in um, in media in the U.S. Right. or Europe. There is not much. The reason um, I got to do the story was because I was a staff reporter. So, um, and then it was just before the UN conference. Other than that, it's um, yeah. I think it's just uh, journalism outlets have a certain amount of money to tell stories and. Ever since Trump, things are going so badly in the United States that a lot of attention is focused over there. Um, yeah, well, I, I really commend you for walking that difficult tightrope. Um, again, I, I know your pieces from 2015. I've, I've been interested in this topic, I guess, for the last two years. But um, thank you again for, for coming on to, the, to discuss it, because I think it's still um, really quite relevant, um, particularly as, you know, solar and microgrids are, are still sort of held up a lot um, by the kind of small is beautiful environmental movement. And, you know, as you're saying, maybe there's some places where they, they have their place, but I think this is really an example of, I guess, kind of like a, a propaganda project that kind of went, <laughs> went terribly wrong for Greenpeace. Um, and I don't mean to be taking low blows, but I, I am, I do find myself frequently frustrated by, by Greenpeace, um, particularly in their anti-nuclearism, where they're you know celebrating the shutting down of you know zero emissions clean energy stations, um, which are generally being replaced by fossil fuels. So, um, yeah, it was it was very interesting again to to see your article. So, thanks again for for writing it. No, no problem. Thank you for chatting with me. And before we go, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to plug your podcast, um, Scrolls and Leaves, um, which I believe is exploring science, history, and culture from, uh, I guess people call it the margins, um, the majority world, the global south. Um, do you want to just give yourself a quick, uh, or give our, our listeners a quick uh, overview of the podcast? Sure. Uh, thanks, Chris. Um, so Scrolls and Leaves is a podcast featuring stories from the margins, uh, margins of history. It's a history podcast. And we are approaching this as a way to shed light on our current world, but from perspectives uh, from the margins. So uh, we've often found that the stories that get out or the perspectives that get out are from the West, from Europe and the US, and the histories that get out are also from there. And But then that's not the majority world. So we just want to put out some of the other stories, not necessarily to fully explain our present, but just to have it out there. So it can just be a different way of understanding our world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting. I I did an interview with an expert on, you know, the world's COVID response. And it seems like the margins are now becoming the center in terms of kind of government competence. (laughs) I think we're really seeing the world shift. So. Um, all the all the more present to uh, to be getting perspectives from, you know, what may be coming the new kind of global center as uh, as some of these developing countries rise. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. I, I listened to that. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, um, Gatshri, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast and uh, look forward to chatting with you more in the future. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Have a good day. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.